You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people And this means when we read it, we are hearing God speak to us. Our passages this morning are from Revelation chapter 7 from verses 1 to 17. And our second passage will be Psalm 67. I'll be reading from the CSB version. I'd encourage you all to follow along in your own Bibles. And the passage will also be displayed on the screen. Revelation chapter 7 from verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east, who had the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth or the sea all the trees, until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Benjamin. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, Who are these people in white robes, and where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. Then he told me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. The ones seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb who is at the centre of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
Psalm 67 from verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us. May he make his face shine upon us so that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations rejoice and shout for joy, for you judge the peoples with fairness and lead the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has produced its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. God will bless us and all the ends of the earth will fear him. Our gracious God, as we look at your word this day, we ask that you might give us our eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your word written for us. These things we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, you know, six weeks ago, we kicked off this series with one big question. One big question. What on earth are we here for? What on earth are we here for? And I hope the answer has, over those six weeks, become abundantly clear. What do we see in Genesis 1? We saw that our fundamental mission is to fill the earth with God's glory. That's what we're here for. Hasn't changed. Genesis 1, all the way to the end, we are here to fill the earth with the glory of God. Then in Isaiah 2, we saw that our mission, we are called to shine the light of God's justice and love into a dark and needy world through our actions and through our proclamation, working together so that the nations might see, ah, that is where the glory of God is found. Then in Mark chapter 1, we saw that our mission is actually God's mission. Our mission is to rescue sinners up from the ocean depths of their sin and to rescue them into the kingdom of God. We then went to Matthew 28, and we were commissioned to proclaim the good news, to go and tell, to open our mouths, to speak the good news that Jesus is risen, and because he is risen, guess what? You and I can be risen with him as well. And then last week, in Ephesians 3, we saw the glory of the church the means and the goal of God's mission in the world. You see, what on earth are we here for? We exist to spread the glory of God to the ends of the earth by proclaiming the good news of forgiveness in the death and resurrection of Jesus for his church. We exist to spread the glory of God to the ends of the earth by proclaiming the good news of forgiveness. And we find that good news in the death and the resurrection of Jesus for his church. You see, all of us, whether pastors or plumbers, missionaries or mechanics, evangelists or electricians, we all exist for the one same reason. You know, though, what's strange? This mission might be so clear. It's so clear why God has saved us. It's so clear why each of us live in this world. But it is not easy. It is not easy. You see, though this mission might be clear, all too often I find myself wanting to give up. 
1952, uh, Florence Chadwick attempted to swim from California to Catalina Island, a distance of some 42 kilometers. She braved choppy waters, possible shark attack, and extreme fatigue. Fifteen hours into her swim, a thick fog set in and Florence couldn't see where she was going. An hour later, she gave up. She was only one mile from the shoreline. Two months later, she tried again and again the thick fog set in. But this time, she made it to the end. And someone asked her once she reached the other side, Florence, what, what made the difference this time round? This is what she said. The first time, all I could see was the fog. But the second time, I kept a mental image of that shoreline in my mind. Do you get that? Florence accomplished her mission. She finished her swim because she kept that picture of her destination in mind. The image of that shoreline. And as we finish our series in the mission of God, I want to help you and me this day to see a picture of our destination. I want us to see a picture, an image of that shoreline. It's the vision that Ingrid just read for us, the vision that we see in Revelation 7. If you're new to our church, here's the trick. Um, you get Revelation 7 and, and you get our church. That, that's kind of how it works. If you've been here from the beginning of church four to five years ago, you would have heard this vision over and over and over again. And you know what? It would be boring if it wasn't so beautiful. I mean, who, who could get sick of staring up into the northern lights? That's what we're doing. I want you to see this vision, this image of the shoreline, so that when you find the mission of God so hard, when you lose all hope in sharing the gospel with your friends, when you think that there's no chance of anyone turning to the Lord, you'll keep on swimming. So if you're despairing that your friends and family might never be saved, if you're on the verge of giving up altogether, saying that living for Jesus is all too hard, I, I want you to see this picture of our destination this day. That's what I want to do. And I want you to see, first of all, that this is, this is a picture of protection. A, a picture of protection. You know, I've asked this question throughout this series. When you look at our world, what do you see? You might see a world that's beautiful. You might see a world that's broken. In Revelation 7, let me show you what the apostle John sees. He sees a world under judgment. A world under judgment, a world deserving of God's wrath. I suspect that's not what many of us see. I suspect it's not what many of us want to see. But friends, we need to reckon with this reality. We live in a world under judgment. We live among a people under judgment. And can I say, friends, that if we really got that, that ought to bring tears to our eyes. If you rewind one chapter, you see in Revelation 6 the picture of the lamb opening the six or the seven seals. Conquest, conflict, famine, death, martyrdom. 
And then in verses 12 to 17 of Revelation 6, he opens the sixth and most terrifying seal of all. It's the judgment of God. This is God's righteous anger for how we have burned Eden to the ground. How we have rebelled against his kingdom. How we have desecrated his temple. This is God's righteous judgment because we have smashed the Lego set of his creation all over the living room floor. It's his righteous judgment because we've broken apart the family that he loves. The Bible calls this judgment hell. An eternity without God. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for people to die once. And after this, judgment. See, friends, if we, if we really saw a world under judgment, that reality of wrath would drive us to mission, wouldn't it? With a heavy heart, it would sting our eyes with tears. It would move our feet to God. It would loosen our tongues to proclaim the gospel for the salvation of the world. In his book, The Everlasting God, R. Broughton Knox writes that too much of our preaching today has no more tears. No more tears. Because we've given up on the judgment of God. But friends, can you see that if we were really gripped by the reality of judgment, our preaching would be full of tears, wouldn't it? Our evangelism would be full of tears. It would be one of the most powerful motivations for mission, but if your eyes are full of tears, it can be crushing. I don't want anyone, especially the people I love, to face the wrath of God. I don't want anyone I care about to suffer his judgment. It's no wonder the people of the earth cry out in verse 16 of Revelation 6, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? You see, friends, if we, if we only see a world under judgment, can I say it would be a thick fog so heavy enough to drown us all together. The thought of people that I love facing an eternity without God, it's enough to cripple me in despair. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I don't know about you, when when I think about this mission that we have, this this task that God has given us, I, I look at all of this and I feel myself overwhelmed by the judgment of God. It is paralyzing. But I want you to see this picture. I want you to see this picture of our destination, this image of the shoreline in verses 1 to 3 of Revelation 7. After this... I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east, 
who had the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. And this is what he said. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. Friends, can, can you see what's happening here? That the God who comes in judgment sends his angels to protect us from that very judgment. In many ways, human history is the long wick of God's patience as he searches out his people and he marks them for salvation. And so even right now, as we share the gospel with our family and friends, and, and it seems to be that there's no fruit on the vine at all, God is finding his people. God is sealing his people. God is saving his people. God is protecting his people from the coming judgment. Friends, if you want to know what mission is, that's what mission's all about. It is us going to the ends of the earth to seek out, to search out the people of God and to save and protect them from his wrath. Can I say, if you're here and you're not a Christian, the only way in which you escape God's judgment, ironically, is to run to him and to find safety in this very same God. For the God who judges is the God who saves. What is that great prayer throughout the Old Testament? In wrath, remember mercy. And he will. I want you to notice who here is sealed, who is protected. It says 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jehovah's Witnesses will read this and say, it means that only 144,000 people in the world and throughout human history are saved. That's absolutely ridiculous. Well, if that were the case, why bother being a Jehovah's Witness? Well, in the end, you're not getting in as well. It's full, right? In the Bible, the number 12 represents completeness. And if that's the case, I want you to imagine just how complete 12,000 must be. And just imagine how much more complete 12 times that must be. Now, this list in verses 4 to 8, it isn't saying that only 144,000 people will be saved. It's saying that all of God's people will be saved. Not one person left behind. I could list the names of people whom I love who have walked away from the Lord. I know many of you can as well. Friends and family, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, people we grew up together with in church, going each Sunday to church together with, going to youth group together, and then one day they said, the world is better. And what brings tears to my eyes is the thought that they may one day face the judgment of God. I hate to think about it. I don't want to think about it. Because if I do, it'll break me. I don't, 
I don't want to stand, I don't want to, I can't promise or tell you whether one person or not is truly saved. I just don't know. Only God does. But let me tell you what I do know. God knows those who are his. He will not forsake them. He will protect his people from the judgment. So I, I will not be overwhelmed by the judgment of our God. I will not give up. I will not stop swimming. I will not stop speaking. I will not stop praying. For the judgment of God is not his final word. Salvation is his final word. God will protect his people from his judgment. If you've got a child or a loved one who isn't walking with the Lord, keep praying. Keep praying. Augustine was saved by the prayers of his mother. And I'm convinced that this world is transformed and changed by the prayers of faithful parents. I want you to know that when it feels impossible to see through the fog of God's wrath, this vision of the shoreline tells me, no, God will protect his people. Some years ago, uh, I traveled to Myanmar, and I remember walking through the streets of Yangon and visiting what's called the Shredagon Pagoda. And as I went there, I was... I was so struck by how many of these people here were living in darkness. Just 8.2% of the population in Myanmar called Jesus their Lord. Let me quantify that for you. That is 47 million people in that one country alone, at least, who are living under judgment. I remember walking through the streets and just feeling so alone. So overwhelmed by the lostness of our world. I thought, what, what difference can I make? Even if I packed up my bags and became a missionary here, what, what difference could I make to the 47 million people? But God says, no, Adam, lift your eyes. See this image of the shoreline. See this picture of worship. It is right there in verses 9 to 10. A vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And I love this which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Did, did you get that? Eyes walked through those streets and felt overwhelmed, but look at this. This here is a vast multitude which no one could number. A, a sea of faces that makes a packed MCG look like a grain of sand on the seashore. I felt so overwhelmed by the lostness of the people in Myanmar. But can I tell you one day, I will be even more overwhelmed by the multitude of people who will be saved. This, friends, is the picture of the fulfillment of God's mission right from the beginning. Do you remember? Adam and Eve were created to, to spread God's glory to the ends of the earth. Israel was, was redeemed to bring the nation to God's glory. Jesus came to, to bring down the kingdom of God with him as the king of all glory. And this, this passage here, Revelation 7, says, One day, at long last, the moment will come where every knee will bow. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, the day is coming when we'll hear those words, mission complete. What a relief. What an assurance. You see, friends, when I am tempted to despair that God's mission will not succeed, when the thick fog of the lostness of our world overwhelms me, no, I need to keep in my mind this image of the shoreline. I, I need to remember that there will be a day when all will bow before him. There will be a day when, when a countless multitude of people will worship Christ as king. See, we often think that there will be a day when people from every tribe will be saved. That's great. That's good. But can you see the mission here is so much greater than just that? God's mission is not simply so that people might be saved. He has saved people for so much more than just that. God's mission, God's vision, God's guarantee of our future is that one day people might be saved for the very thing that they were created for. That they might be saved to worship. You know, you might have grown up in church your whole life. And you might have sung songs that use that word worship. And let's face it, I know it happens. When we sing songs, they're great. We're going to sing Hymn of Heaven later. You're all excited. It's a banger. We all like it. But how many of us actually stop to think about the lyrics of that song? Or any song? How many of us know actually what the word worship means? Confession time. When I was younger, I grew up in church. I used to think that worship was just another word for singing. And not just any singing. Worship meant singing the slow songs, right? We had praise and worship. Praise meant the fast songs, my Redeemer lives in every day, classics. And worship meant, you know, heart of worship, here I am to worship. If it's got the word worship... It's a slow song, right? Like, and that's what I thought. And then, and then I said, no, okay, I need to read my Bible. I read my Bible, and I realized that, no, worship is so much more than just that. Romans 12 calls us, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So, so then I realized, okay, no, Adam, no, worship's not just the slow songs. It's also the fast songs, and, and it's more than just that. It's, it's everything. It isn't just what we do when we gather, it's what we do when we scatter, it's what we do every moment of our lives. To worship God is to live our whole lives devoted to the Lord. To worship God is to know, love, and live for Jesus. You see, we, we don't only worship God when we sing, we worship God when we work, when we rest, when we play, we worship God in all of our lives. But as is the case with, with swinging pendulums, right? In that discovery of all of life is worship, I ironically lost the glory of worshipping God when we gather. Worship then became something I did everywhere other than church, right? I worship God at work. I worship God in my family. And then when the song leader comes up and says, friends, let's stand and worship God, I'd be like, you can't say that. We don't worship here. We worship out there. We do not worship here. No, but we do. In fact, more than anything else, that's what we do. We worship everywhere and we worship especially when we gather. I want to show you we've been saved to worship. In Exodus 7, what did Moses say to Pharaoh? Let my people go so that they may 
worship me in the wilderness. Israel was redeemed out of Egypt and gathered as a people so that they might worship the Lord. Revelation 5, the elders gather, assemble, church around the throne. They fall down and they worship the Lamb as they church and gather. In Revelation 7.11, the angels, the elders, and the four living creatures fall face down before the throne. They church around the throne and they worship the Lord. You see, friends, we have been saved to worship. And we have been gathered to worship. And believe it or not, guess what? They even sing. Like you can use the word worship for sing, right? Look, verse 10, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 12, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I want to say not only is it okay that singing is worship, I want to say it is. Because genuine worship cannot help but express itself in song. So when we sing hymn of heaven, when we sing, let the nations be glad, I'm priming you and training you for this moment, right? It's a sing. Lift your hands in prayer. There's no sniper in the back who's going to shoot you, right? It's okay. You can sing with all your heart. You can lift your hands higher than waist level, right? It's okay. To, to worship God literally means to, to give God the, the, the worth that he is due. To praise him. To thank him. To love him for who he is and what he's done. It is to see the extent. No, no, no. It is to see the depth of my sin. The greatness of his glory. The extent of my salvation. And to say, God, how can I not give you my whole life? It is to know how beautiful God really is is to cherish him, not just obey him. No, 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 it is, easy, it is all too easy to bow the knee while still raising the fist. No, 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 we must not just obey him, we must adore him. He must be our supreme treasure, our greatest love and our highest joy. Is he yours? Do you love him like that? And the whole purpose of our lives is to get this whole world to love him like we do. Listen to what John Piper writes. Worship is the fuel of missions. Passion for God precedes the offer of God in preaching. I love this. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad, who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exult in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. Missions begins and ends in worship. Friends, God's judgment and God's glory must be the twin engines that fuel our mission in the world and keep us swimming through the fog. Our hearts must not only break for the lostness of our world, our hearts must burn for the glory of our God. 
We must be so captured by this vision of the future, a vision of a thousand hallelujahs. We must love the Lord so deeply and cherish Him so dearly that we long for nothing more than people from every nation to love Him like we do. Can I say, if, if, if I really, really love someone, I can't stop talking about them. And if I really, really, really love someone, I want you to really, really, really love them as well. And I will not rest until you can see what I can see and love him like I do. Friends, we must be inspired not by the mere possibility, but by the sure destiny that one day even the hardest of hearts will melt and love the Lord. And can I say, if that future is a certainty, I have every reason to not be overwhelmed by the lostness of our world. The Joshua Project tells us that of the 17,445 people groups in the world, 7,391 remain unreached. That is 42.4% of our world that lives under the judgment of God. 3.4 billion people destined for hell. And you sit there, 3.4 billion people, and you go, how could we ever reach that many people? Even if all 180 of us were to pack up our bags and become missionaries, and that would have put a dent in that number. It's overwhelming to the point of being paralyzing, isn't it? Take heart. For as many people as are as unreached today, one day you and I will stand there around the throne and our breath will be taken away. At the number of people who won't just be saved out of hell, the number of people who will be saved into heaven, the number of people whose hearts were once so hard have now been melted to love, cherish, and worship the Lord like we do. Are you overwhelmed by the judgment of God? Are you overwhelmed by the lostness of our world? Lift your eyes and see this image of the shoreline, a picture of protection, a picture of worship, and finally a picture, I love it, a picture of perfection. Look, look at verse 13. One of the elders asked John, who are these people in white robes and where did they come from? And very quickly we realize that these people are martyrs, people who have suffered for the gospel. They are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. You see, friends, who are these people in Revelation 7? They are the women and men who held the line, who kept on swimming, who committed their whole lives to the mission of God. And we might expect their robes to be stained with their own blood, blood that they shed for the Lord Jesus. But look, their robes are white, clean, pure and holy because they've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus' death has secured their salvation even though they died for him. You see, friends, these are the women and the men who gave their everything for the gospel. Names familiar and names unfamiliar. Jim Elliot, 
Amy Carmichael, Corrie Ten Boom, Elizabeth Elliot, C.T. Studd, Gladys Aylward, Hudson Taylor, Lottie Moon, Robert Morrison, Harriet Tubman, George Carey. And you and me. And you might go, there's no way that's me. Those people were people who went to the mission field and died for the gospel. But I want you to see it's you and me as well. Because in verse 9, the vast multitude of people, they too are clothed in white robes. We too have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. And do you know what that means? If you and I have been saved by the blood of the Lamb, then you and I must also give everything for the gospel. We must have the faith of the saints in Hebrews 11 who experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment, who were stoned, sawed in two, died by the sword, wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Friends, these are Christians whose lives were seemingly wasted and thrown away for the sake of the mission of God. And can I say, that is what God asks of us as well. He asks each and every one of us in this room who live for Jesus to throw our lives away for him. And you might wonder, is it all worth it? Is it really worth it to, to give up such great comforts and luxuries to, to waste away and die on the mission field? Is it worth it to be disowned by our family, abandoned by our friends, forsaken by all to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Is, is it all the waste of a life? And can I say, actually, I find this one the one that bites the most. Yes, there are times when I am overwhelmed by the judgment of God. There are other seasons where I'm overwhelmed by the losses of our world. If I'm honest, most of the time, I find myself overwhelmed at the cost of this mission. Overwhelmed at the cost of this mission. It is all too easy to harbor somewhere in our hearts a sense of regret for following the Lord. Look at this image of the shoreline. It's there in verses 15 to 17. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they worship him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. You will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike you, nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd you. He will guide you to springs of the waters of life. And God will wipe away every tear from your eye. Every tear. If I'm honest, um, there have been moments... And there will be more in my ministry. Why I have wondered. Is it all worth it? To be honest. Like I, I see the sin of our church and churches everywhere. 
I see the brokenness of people. I see the hardness. You know what gets me? The hardness of our hearts. That's what breaks me more than anything else. I told our leaders this. You, know, you get up here. You preach your heart out. You plead with people to turn to the Lord and see the mission of God. And people go, is that the same sweater that you wore last week? And you're like, really? It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. I see people rejected by their parents to pursue gospel ministry. I see people take a massive pay cut for leaving a corporate job to further God's mission in the world. I see people say no to marriages that would otherwise bring great joy but impede the progress of the gospel. How can you not have moments where you kind of stand there and go, is it all worth it? A few months ago, um, I remember I, I'm feeling this more acutely than I'd ever felt. I'm ashamed to admit it. I feel guilty for recruiting people into ministry. I, I, I legitimately felt guilty for asking, you know, Joe and Tim and Jeb and Holly and everyone else to, to think about serving God in this way. I lay in my bed and at night I, lit, I, I, I lay there and thought, what have I done? <laughs> I've ruined their lives. I've enlisted them to a life of such great suffering. I was overwhelmed by the cost of the mission. You know, so in moments like that, you, you can go one of two ways on this, right? Lord willing, a better third way. But you could give in to the sadness at a life that's wasted. Option one. Option two. You could give in to the bitterness at the price that you have to pay resentment at God for the cost of ministry and the sacrifices that you make for him. Peter Adam uh, once said this, quote, one of the most moving questions I was asked at a preaching conference was whether ministers would be bitter for eternity because of the pains and suffering of Christian ministry. I replied that Christ's well-done, good and faithful servant would wipe all the tears from our eyes. Friends, that is true not just of me, or Joe, or Tim, or Jeb, or Holly. It's true of us all. Those who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. And you will have moments where you will wonder if it was worth it all, or worth it at all. This is true. Christ's well-done, good and faithful servant will wipe every tear from your eyes. Friends, that's what God wants us to see in this vision. If we keep this image of the shoreline in our mind, we will not be overwhelmed by its cost. So when we recruit people for gospel ministry, no, when we implore one another to live lives worthy of the gospel, when we ask each other to be on mission with our unreached family and friends and colleagues and, and classmates, we are not asking you to waste your life. No, we are asking you to expend your life in the only cause truly worth dying for. Some years ago, uh, I was traveling uh, in, in Malaysia, speaking at a conference there, and this guy came up to me and said, Adam, my life would be so much easier if I didn't take God seriously. And you know what? <coughs> The temptation in that moment is going, no, no, brother, don't say that. 
He's right. (laughs) On one level, he's right. This guy, right, if he didn't devote his life to God's mission as he was doing, he would have had a better job. He would have been married, maybe not happily, but married. He would have been able to enjoy many more things in this world. Can I tell you, ironically, I also knew that if he did not live his life for the mission of God, that would be the life that is truly wasted. That would be the life that is truly wasted. Can I say, uh, it is possible for many of us here who genuinely are Christian to be genuinely saved and yet waste our lives. You you read 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, it is terrifying. You see the story of a man who's genuinely saved. He gets into the kingdom, but what he builds with his life burns up through the fires of hell. And he gets into the kingdom with his hair and his eyebrows singed with the fires of hell. He gets there, he's saved, but when he stands before God, he does not hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That'd break my heart. It'd break my heart. Can I say I genuinely fear for Christians living in our city that we would be genuinely saved but not give our lives in a radical way to the mission of God. That we might enjoy the glories of heaven knowing that we're in the kingdom but close the gates behind us. That that church life is good and this is good enough. That we might seek to get the glories of heaven whilst not letting go of the riches of this world. To try have the best of both kingdoms. But our Lord Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. We cannot belong to one kingdom whilst live for another with our whole lives. No, friends, I want to say that if you give everything for God and his mission... You will not regret it. You will never regret it. So if you feel like my friend overseas did, sad, bitter, resentful at God, overwhelmed by the cost of this mission, I get it. I get it. But the promise of this shoreline says God will one day put our broken lives back together. He will put this broken world back together. And however deep your pain, however great the cost, in the end, you'll see that it was worth it when he wipes away our tears. We exist to spread God's glory to the ends of the earth by proclaiming the good news of forgiveness in the death and resurrection of Jesus for his church. The goal of our mission is God's glory. The field of our mission is the whole earth. The means of our mission is proclamation. The instrument of our mission is the gospel of forgiveness. The guarantee of our mission is Jesus' death and resurrection. The glory of our mission is the church. And friends, I want you to see, the end of our mission is worship. So hear these final words that cast before us the ultimate image of that shoreline. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. 
Worship is not ultimate. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. And when this age is over, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. Friends, that is what we strive for. That is what we suffer for. That is what we live for. It's what we must die for. Let me pray. God of the nations, your heart is for all people so that people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue might fall on their knees before the Lamb and worship him as their king. God, when we feel overwhelmed by your judgment, lift our eyes and help us see that shoreline, that picture of protection that you will save your people. When we feel ourselves overwhelmed by the lostness of this world, lift our eyes, show us that shoreline and help us see no one day even the hardest of hearts will love you and worship you. And when we feel overwhelmed by the cost of our mission, when we just want to give up, when the fog sets in and we have nothing more to give, fix in our minds that image of the shoreline that one day you will come and wipe away our tears. These things we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.